I think that the manufacturers will build what the public wants. If the public wants all EVs, they're going to be all EVs. If the public wants a combination of combustion and EVs, you're going to see a combination of combustion and EVs because someone's got to scratch the itch of the consumer. We can't just sit at the top and dictate what we want. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients, like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5 and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Blackwings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community-driven, locally different since 1935. If you're anything like me, you're constantly reading. And if you're tired of sifting through dozens of online blogs and Twitter feeds to get the commercial real estate news you need, subscribe to the CRE Daily Newsletter. Think of this email like your smart, no-bullshit friend breaking down all the biggest stories, acquisitions, trends, and fundraisings of the day and compiling them into one digestible email that you'll actually enjoy reading. This newsletter is now read by over 65,000 real estate investors, brokers, developers, and deal junkies. The CRE Daily keeps you informed on the top national, regional, and property sector news that matters to your business without all the BS. Give it a try by subscribing free at CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. All right, folks. I've got one of my best friends, a legend in the automobile business. <laughs> uh, and when I say best friends, Will really is. Will and I have been in YPO together now for five years. Yeah. When you're in YPO, you get to know somebody pretty well. And so today's special for me. I really admire Will. I admire everything he's done in the automobile industry, and we're about to talk about it. So, Without further ado, welcome. Thank you, Chris. You know, um, I, I know a lot of your listeners probably subconsciously know this, and I'm going to make a statement, and then this is my basis for that statement. 
So I've been blessed enough to be interviewed by CNBC, some of the biggest media people, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Bloom, just pick them all, right? And of all the people I've ever been interviewed with, when we did our podcast a few years ago, you are the best interviewer. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and that is a that is a God-given talent. And I am so glad that you have found this medium to do it in and to share it with everyone because I listen to your podcast and it's the the education that you get. I mean, it's like getting a, a master's degree without having to sit through a boring class. So it's an honor to sit across from you. When you gave me this date, I circled it on my calendar. I put a star <laughs> on it. I think I showed up a half hour early. Uh, it's just... To be interviewed by you is awesome. So thank you for the honor and the privilege. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. I've been working on it for four years. My interview skills are getting better. Um, but uh, let's start today with, let's set the, the stage. Give the audience a flavor of what brands do you deal used, new, so that everybody can get a sense for where you're coming from and how long you've been in the industry. Give us a little bit of background. Perfect. So... My family's been in the automobile business, we say 87 years. It really goes back to the about 1915, 1916, but we count 1935 as our official start date because that's when my great-grandfather, Frank Kent, had his first dealership um, in Fort Worth. We actually had a Buick or GMC store up in um, Lubbock back in the 20s, but we count 1935 as our start date. So we go back to 1987. Me personally, I got in the business in 1999 and have been in it since then. And at that point, I think we had eight franchises. We've represented uh, Honda. We've represented Hyundai. Um, we've represented Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Ram. We've represented Subaru. We've represented uh, a lot of brands that have come to town and left. Uh, Daewoo, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Hummer. Um, but currently, we sit with a Cadillac store in Fort Worth, Texas, a Cadillac store in Arlington, Texas. And then we have a Buick GMC Chevy store in Corsicana, Texas. And then we have our parts distribution business uh, for Ford and for GM. So that's from a manufacturer standpoint, that's who we currently represent. And for people that don't know, what is the parts distribution business? So we have a wholesale business where we work directly with Ford and General Motors. We're set up by them as a vendor. And then we sell the accessories to the GM and Ford dealers and select markets. And that's all dictated by the manufacturer. Um, we can't sell to a retail client, so our job is to sell to the dealers and help educate them, give them same-day, next-day service, be their technical support. Um, when I got into the car business, I just fell in love with accessories and started a retail shop, and from there, we've grown into this. Um, but on the retail automotive side, you know, we uh, on the used side, we carry everything. So if it's got four wheels and an electric motor or a gas motor, we've carried it and sold it. Um, but on the new car side, it's the uh, GM brands. Okay. All right, folks, you've heard it. So we, we've got some experience in the car business. I, If anybody hasn't listened to the episode we did in April of 2020, I encourage you to do it. And I'm going to tell just a quick story. When COVID hit in March of 2020, uh, one of the great things about YPO is you have forums and there's eight of us. And I will never forget uh, the world was kind of falling apart that month. And we all decided to have an emergency meeting and we met at my office and we were all sitting in there and I was freaking out because um, uh, we had gone from industrial is great to don't pay your landlord in a matter of weeks. <laughs> and I'll never forget what uh, Will said. And he said, um, I've been through several downturns now 
And the way you treat people and the way you act over the next couple of years will define you. And we're in this for the long game. You just heard they're in it for 87 years. And he said, we're going to do everything we can to help our customers. And somehow when we've taken that approach, we've always come out the other side better and stronger. So we're now two years, uh, maybe not two years. We're about 20 months since we did our last one. Yeah. Let's kind of talk about the last two years. What happened? Uh, I think, uh, 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 so from an automotive perspective, right? Um, I think some of it was highly predictable and the highly predictable piece. And I think we referenced it in that podcast is that when we get through the bad piece of it, you'll see a significant amount of M&A because people that had gone through a couple of different recessions or situations like, I'm probably not going to do this again. And there has been a massive amount of M&A in our space. And it's the big uh, conglomerates, Group One, Auto Nation, um, all those players that are coming in and buying people like me. Um, and then we've actually bought one. And so, and then you've seen some other uh, bigger mom and pop dealerships buying some stuff. So the M&A was, we talked about it and it did happen. Yep. I think the thing that has caught everyone by surprise was the semiconductor chip shortage and then the massive ramifications that that has caused. Yep. Um, and so I, I think that that really caught everyone by surprise. Um, you know, if you go back two years and you go to a C-suite at, you know, some of the big companies and you ask them who's in charge of your supply chain logistics, they'd probably look at, I don't know, it's, you know, down there in four. 28 and no clue you ask them today they know them by name they're having dinner with them you know so your your supply chain guy or girl is like one of the most important people now and before it was just a, a box you checked right and do we know what caused the chip shortage um, i mean we can say covid we can say supply but it happened so quickly yeah from what i understand it it's a couple different things a, a plant went down um and, and so that played a role in it um COVID played a role in it. That what really caused the biggest issue from an automotive perspective is that the chips are somewhat um, they're 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 pre-allocated based on uh, contracts, okay. right? So if I'm a manu- automobile manufacturer and you are a chip supplier, I've got a contract with you for fifty thousand chips. Well, as soon as COVID hit. Automobile manufacturers went to their chip suppliers and say, look, I know we got a contract for 50,000, but I only want 20,000. So then they took those chips and they repurposed them to other people. Mm. And so the automobile industry lost some of their uh, built-in chip supply because when COVID hit, they all went into cost-saving mode and started cutting back all the contracts they could. Got it. And so that was part of it as well. So it was, you know... which in the past they've done it and it's worked out well, but this time it didn't work out so well. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of bounce forward, then we'll come back to what happened during COVID. But, but where do we sit now with the chip shortage? So we still have a, uh, there's still a chip shortage. You know, I yeah. bought a uh, 2022 GMC that still heated seats don't work, cooled seats don't work. And, you know, but that's just life. They'll get they'll get the chips to me when they get them. Yeah. Um, I'm not in any special line order. I'm just a client just like you and, you know, the vehicle you got. So um, the inventories are starting to peak up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and also our retail SAR, which is our 
annual retail sales of units is coming down a little bit. And okay. so that, I think that has an impact. So, you know, just to take a numbers look at it. In 2019, at the end of 2019, January, so pre-COVID, okay. we were on a retail SAR of 14.3 million new units. That doesn't include use. That's just new retail units that dealers were selling. That's sold. the whole country. It's a whole country. Okay. In 2021, we were at 14.6 million. Okay. So only up 300,000. Okay. But yet prices were sky high, no rebates, no transactions. So, but supply was down. And then in 2022, we're now headed to a 13.6 million SAR. So that's roughly a million units less. That's where we're trending as of uh, the end of September. And that's because people aren't buying or because there's no cars to be bought? Well, inventories are starting to come in a little bit. Interest yeah. rates are up a little bit. Um, full-size SUVs are still tough to get. You know, we're still a few months out on yeah. orders for that. But, you know, if you drive around to car dealers lots, they're starting to see some cars. And, the you know, the used car market is starting to fall apart a little bit from a wholesale perspective. And so that has an impact as well. So um, all that added together puts us to where we sit today. Okay, so let's talk about pricing. Okay. Uh, I'll brag on you a little bit. Um, you told me from the very beginning, we are not going to gouge. Right. But the whole industry pretty much, you, I guess you could say has gouged for the last two years. Is that fair? I would say that uh, charging over MSRP is gouging, and there has been a significant amount of it spread across all brands, all cities, all dealers. People that claim they're obsessed with service and whatever are still, you know, getting over msrp so we've been in business like i said since 1935 and we never add a market value adjustment to vehicles still haven't i mean the escalate v's bring in 30 40 000 over msrp God. and we're just the ones we get we're selling right at msrp and and when somebody's selling a car at 30 40 000 over msrp i'm assuming the auto loan agencies are also allowing people to get loans that are 30 40 000 above msrp yeah they they are they're putting cash down you know we don't know because we're not playing in that game right but to your point i mean the the loan to value they only allow so high so they've either got to come with cash or some other mechanism to bring that down and i'm going to ask the dumbest question no but i'm assuming the let's just say we'll take Cadillac. Cadillac's going to get paid what they're going to get paid for their uh, Escalade. Yep, they're going to allow the dealer to charge forty thousand more and profit forty thousand. There's no contract that you must have with the dealer that says we can't mark these. Why wouldn't Cadillac just charge the dealer more? Cadillac has taken price increases. Ford has. Everyone has taken price increases for a number of reasons, but the. Um, the manufacturer msrp is uh, a manufacturer's suggested retail price they uh, can't go in and tell people what to charge for something because then that's collusion got it so but they have sent letters out like you know they're, they're not happy with dealers charging over msrp because they're, they're, there's a lot of ramifications for that not today let's go back in 2020 when i said long-term game yeah this is a disaster a disaster that's sitting on the horizon in 18 to 24 months. And it's starting to come to field right now because wholesale prices are down pretty significant. And so, um, and we'll get into that later, but it, it, it's going to be disgusting what's going to happen because you've got a, a client that paid 10, 15, 20,000 over MSRP and they're going to come in in two years and they're going to be, we're talking high credit tier customers that are going to be $60,000 upside down, meaning they owe 
a uh, hundred <laughs> and it's worth 40. I mean, and, and, and so they're going to be faced with a decision. What do I do? Do I swallow that $60,000 pill or do I just say, you know what? Take the car back, ding my credit. I'm not paying the 60 grand. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it feels like it probably could happen. I just wrote down disaster in all caps that we're going to get to, but we got to keep going on this for a second. So let's just say that scenario happened. And I'm assuming it's the, the, the bubble that might be forming is just there's going to be a loan agency holding that loan that's going to get a loan back. And, and that could be coming at a huge rush all at once. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so if I were buying a car today, which I have, there's two things I would do to help prevent what could be on the horizon. Okay. And think of it as an insurance policy, okay. right? Lease the car. Do a two-year or three-year lease. Your payment may be a little higher, but at the end of two or three years, you could really care less what happens in the used car market because you just hand the keys back to whoever the leasing Frank agency Kent. was. Frank Kent. Yeah, give it back to Frank Kent. We give it to GM Financial, and it's their baby. Now, let's say that this bubble doesn't pop, and in two or three years, we're still there. Okay, well, now you've got equity in your lease. Perfect. So it's like an insurance policy. The what second, does equity in your lease mean? Equity means that um, the manufacturer, which is what we're seeing a lot of the last two years, the manufacturer said the car would be worth 25 at the end of the lease, which is what you can buy it for. That's a residual value, ah. but it's actually worth 30. Oh, I've got $5,000 of equity in my lease. Got it. So let's flip that. Manufacturer says it's going to be worth 25,000. It's worth 20. Yeah. Here's keys. It's a hedge. Yeah. Here's keys. God. Yeah, but it, <laughs> it, and it's a very cheap hedge, in my opinion. Where are all the where do are all the loans coming from? Just a few lenders, or is this like are people getting auto loans from their local bank, from the credit union, from like do you guys provide loans? Where do all the loans come from? So we handle. we think of us as the um, like the mortgage broker. Okay, right. So you come to us, you want to buy a car, we go shop it. We have relationships with 30 different banks, credit unions, whatever. And we send it out there. We get the best rate. And then we say, Chris, here's the rate, you know, and, and that's how it goes. So we are not a bank and we do not carry the notes. We are, like I said, we're, think of us as like a mortgage broker, yep. right? We just, we pair the client and the lending institution together, handle all the paperwork, sign it, they go, and then they make their payments to them and- we're out of it from that point forward. When these cars were being marked up 30, 40,000 on that loan, uh, I'm assuming the lender was looking at the application going, Chris is about to buy a car that's 40,000 over MSRP. Were they making me put down more money to get that loan or was it still the same loan to down payment ratio? Well, they, they have a loan to value in LTV. And so, okay. you know, whatever that percentage is, let's say it's 120%, yeah. right? Well, if MSRP of a vehicle is a hundred grand yep, and I can get 120% LTV, that's 20,000 over MSRP that I can lend against, assuming I have no negative equity. And most people trading in because they bought two or three years ago, their trade-ins were, I mean, we had a lot of clients whose trade-ins were worth more than what they paid for it. So they yeah. had significant equity in their cars. And so that was helping, you know, chew down that difference. I remember reading in 2021, if you had just bought a Kia in like January, 2021, 
you would have done better than buying like the S&P 500 or something. Oh, we bought uh, <laughs> we bought 150 Chevy Volts VLTs. I remember that. Yeah, and we and I think we paid 16,500 for them and we kept them for um a year, ran them in our loan car fleet, ran them back through the auction, and they brought twenty five thousand a piece. Unbelievable! I mean, it was just you know we we got lucky. Yeah, but yeah, you could do stupid stuff like that. But now it's it's a little different. We're going to talk about where the industry is headed, um, and that's a big part of the conversation. Obviously, I sent you some of those Twitter questions, and that's where a lot of people are coming in. That's what I want to know, but. Is there anything that changed through COVID that is a permanent change? Now we can talk about where it's headed, you know, where we might be five years from now, but are there just things that change that you'll never go back to because of COVID? Yeah, I think that the consumer is more trusting of the online experience. Okay. So that, you know, before that they weren't, you know, kind of one toe in, one toe out. Now they're both feet in. Yep. So that is good. Um, you know, we have changed our uh, hours of operation uh, for the better. We've trimmed a couple, uh, I think we trimmed an hour and a half off each day. We'll multiply that. And so that's a little better work-life balance. Yep. Um, we have tools that we had pre-COVID that you know, I, I think what I don't know what percent of a computer you use, they say, you know, but you don't use anywhere near all of it. Yeah. And so we had all these tools, but we weren't using them. Now we use them and it's changed the work life balance. So I think our work life balance is definitely better. And I think the customer experience from an online perspective, tools are coming around quicker because customers are demanding it. And so I think the online experience um, is getting better. And I think we are very nearly headed to a paperless online transaction opportunity uh, within the automotive piece. Certain states already have it. Texas doesn't. We still require wet ink on a couple of things. Yep. And unfortunately, we're at the mercy of our antiquated uh, DMS providers, which is our operating systems. We're going to change to a new one. And that's going to allow us to go the way the customers want to go. So I, I think... COVID's brought us a better online experience and it's easier for the customers. They don't have to come sit in a dealership and go through it. They can do a lot of this stuff like you did. You know, here, here's a link, fill out the credit app. Here's a link, do this. So when you come in, you can be in and out of the finance office in 15 minutes. And then it's just how long does it take to deliver your car? Anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half because they're so technology advanced. That might have just answered the question. Some people uh, were just saying, how do we get out of going to that through that three hour experience of buying a car and what you're saying is the online is being pushed further what is happening online that people can do i remember in my situation i was able to go pick out my car how i wanted it put in the order again showed up got my keys and it was about as simple as possible so i, I think a couple things are uh helping that one we don't have inventory okay right and so um choice adds time into the system yep. so if you know that you can just go online spec a truck out you're gonna have to wait you send it to me i order it and i call you when it's in we're no longer spending an hour at the dealership going through all the options and features before that you would have come to the dealership and we would have had to educate you on the options the packages and then we do a dealer we'd see what's available out there that matches the unicorn that you want <laughs> You know, and, and and so a lot. So there's a fair amount of that that goes into that upfront process that adds time into it. 
The other thing that adds time into it is the finance piece of it. And so let's take a Saturday, right? Um, we'll sell 10 to 15 new and used cars on a Saturday. Well, we have two finance people. Well, you've got to run those 10 cars through two people. That takes time. So if it were me and I was buying a car and I wanted to save time, right? You can very easily get to within probably a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars of what your car is worth through numerous online, you know, put it in Carvana's site, see what they'll offer you for. I mean, there's there's a handful of KBB blue, but you, you can get an idea. It's they're not it's not hundred percent accurate till someone sees it, touches it, and says, Yep, you're right, or you know, I, I know you marked excellent, but uh, you, you remember the night you uh, <laughs> ran down the side of the trash can, you know? Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. So, you know, you've got that piece. So, so you can get an idea of what your trade is worth, right? You can, um, you know, we can send you a link and you can fill out your credit app and we can submit all that while you're at home and shopping banks to get you the best deal. Yeah. And then and then we can have the finance person call you uh, and then, you know, Make sure that everything's correct on the paperwork. See if you need an extended warranty or gap or, you know, any of the other products that come after that. And so you can do a lot of that stuff just over the period of a day, just on a phone call real quick. Um, and, and so that would help. Um, but when, you know, you've got 300 cars on the lot and you go out there and your eyes get all wide open and well, I like that color, but I don't like that interior. And I like, and then you start trying to mix and match. That, that's where time gets added in. So yeah. I think that's part of it is the selection process. I think the other part is the finance process. And then the negotiation process is clunky and silly and yeah. takes too long. And that's why, you know, I was reading through some of the comments and said, oh, well, ask him what he thinks about no haggle, right? Well, we've been no haggle on pre-owned cars for two years and in 20, uh, 13, we, when we had our Honda store, we were one of the first dealers to go no haggle on new and used. What's no haggle? Means the price on the sticker is the price you pay. Which there's, is, there's no negotiate. No negotiate. You That's get it. one shot for the trade, one shot. And you know who's the first one to try and screw that up? Who? The customer. <laughs> I know it says no haggle, but uh, could I, would you, should you? Like, <clears throat> You see the no haggle signs everywhere, right? I mean, that's kind of what we do here. We try and give you the most fair thing up front. And then you come in and you're like, well, I, you're lying. I know there's an extra 200 somewhere. I'm like, no, there's really not. Yeah. So it was a fun exercise. And that's kind of where we are today, right? Yeah. I mean, everything's at MSRP. So that makes it simple. So the trade in is really the, you know, what what's it really worth? And that's, uh, there's plenty of online sites to get you in the ballpark yep. of what it's worth. Does anybody just go online and go, look, these are the 300 cars you have in your lot and I want that one. And they just pick it and then they show up and just get that one. Or if you're going to buy something off the lot, you kind of want to come in and see it first before you. So usually it. we do get that, but usually that client has been somewhere else too. So in the buying funnel, they're deeper down in it. They went and visited a, a lot to know. Got it. I want that. You know, yeah. or it matches what they previously had. Yeah. But for someone that's transitioning from a BMW to a Cadillac, no, they've got to go and sit in it because they're considering Cadillac, BMW, Lexus. You know, they, they, something has happened with BMW and they are now leaving the brand or considering leaving the brand. So they've got to go get their validation points validated. 
Carvana, yes or no? Short, yes. Short, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, it, what's wrong with what is car? What is the deal there? Is it was it just overfunded? They were losing money, and now the the party's over. Well, I, I you know, Chris, I, I think one thing that I've learned from you, I've learned a lot, but but one thing I learned is when you look at investing in a deal, mm-hmm. the first thing you ask yourself is not does this idea work or not, because there's plenty of great ideas that don't work. And there's plenty of bad ideas that are highly successful. And it all comes down to the guy or girl that's in charge of the idea. Mm. Invest in the guy or girl, not the idea, right? Right. I mean, that's, I learned it from you. Bet the jockey. Bet yeah, the horse. Bet the jockey, for sure. And so that's all I'll say. Yeah. Do your research. There's plenty of dirt there. You don't even need a shovel to dig it up. So, but if somebody's coming, how often is somebody talking to you? You think you're going to make a sale, and then like, why would somebody go to Carvana over Frank Kent? Why would they think they should go to Carvana? Or because in their mind, it it, it it's an easy because you can just click do it. I mean, you don't even really interact with a human until show, someone shows up in your driveway with your car, which yeah. is super nice, right? And yeah. then they pick your car up, put it on the deal, and they leave. So it's super nice. The problem is, is it doesn't make money. People yeah. are like, Will, why don't you do it? I'm like, because uh, I want to be in business and I'm not publicly <laughs> traded. I don't have other people's money. I mean, they just lost. They're, they're in trouble in Michigan. I think they lost their license in Illinois. I mean, they're, and but, it's, but it's all predictable, right? You can't lose money selling cars and stay in business. Well, and to be fair, and I, this is from my limited knowledge, but I've done some research on the automobile industry. You don't just sell cars. You maintain cars. You fix cars. You do like there's a whole service component. Right. Does Carvana have like if I were to buy a car from Carvana, no. where am I taking it to get service to Frank Kent? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so you get that margin. We do get that margin. And, you know, this isn't bag on Carvana, right? They right. have brought a lot of good tools to the marketplace. They have, you know, they, they've done a bunch of good stuff from that perspective. But they focus on cars that are still in warranty. Yeah. So why do you focus on cars that are still in warranty? The reason you do that, if you're Carvana, is so that you don't have to deal with the customers, right? I got an issue. When it's under warranty, go to the GM store, go to whatever store. Yeah. I don't have to deal with it. If it's out of warranty, now they got to deal with it. Yep. Right? Yep. So they deal with cars that are in warranty and they just, they throw their problems over to us and then it's our job to clean. I mean, like, to give you an example, to take proper delivery of a 2022 Escalade is a 45 minute to an hour and 15 minute delivery because of all the technology. Okay. We have product specialists that know the car inside and out in that car. You buy that same car from one of these online retailers that drops it in your driveway. They don't, and it's not their fault. They're selling a thousand different models. They don't know that. Yes, they can pair your phone. Great job. <laughs> you know, they know where the turn signal is. Way to go. Yeah. But you start digging deep into what these cars have the ability to do. They don't have that. So then they end up on our lot. With like, hey, I bought this from, you know, XYZ. Can you please help me with it? So then we take 30 minutes to walk them through or 40, whatever it takes to get them comfortable and, and do a proper delivery. So yeah. they just dump that on the dealers. Let's start talking about uh, kind of 
we, we we've kind of set the stage that where the market is today inventories are starting to pick up again car prices are coming down is there anything else besides the obvious interest rates are going up so it's a little bit uh more expensive to get a car but is there anything else that somebody that's not in the auto industry that comes to your head like what are you thinking about right now in today's world so in today's world right now what i am contemplating and focusing on is the wholesale market yep because every used car that we have on the lot today is losing value yep and they're losing 2%, 5%, 10%. Okay. Daily. Quick. Quick. And so that's where a lot of our attention is right now, is on the wholesale market. Okay. So in my opinion, there are two things that really drive the car market. The wholesale market, because if your car is worth more, right, it's a lot easier to trade you out. If it's worth less, we get into a more difficult situation. The other issue, and, and it's, a, it's a sticky point, but it's Wall Street. And Wall Street, in my opinion, the street is to blame for the bad habits of the manufacturers. Because the first thing that the street cares about is the total number of units that GM has sold for it has sold. You know, if you look at, um, if you look at like automotive news, it's like Tesla delivered a record number of vehicles. Lucid is on track to, um, you know, hit their deliveries. At no point in any of those conversations does the word net profit come into play, right? Mm -hmm. So right now, pretty much everyone has a pass on total units delivered except for the startups because that's the only way to measure them, right? We're not going to measure their profit because they don't have any. So we get, we got to measure how many did Tesla deliver, <laughs> how many did Lucid, right? Well, when we get back to measuring the manufacturers on how many they deliver, they just push them back to us and then the rebates come back and it, it, it's bad, you know, and then and then that has further deterioration on the wholesale market. What has kept the market so frothy right now is that we have limited, more limited supply. Wholesale market has come up and the main, the manufacturers are being looked more at on a profit basis than a retail delivery basis because COVID is the umbrella that says, oh, you can't measure us on that. So let's look at profit. If we stuck with measuring the manufacturers on profit, cars wouldn't deteriorate as fast, rebates wouldn't be as big, and the gap would be fine. Does that make sense? Yes. I But we're not going to fix it. <laughs> and so in two years we'll be back to 300 cars on the lot rebates through the the wazoo you know well we're gonna get there well um i have now disaster circled yep i want to go back to this scenario of i bought my car for 140 it's now worth 100 yep i owe uh or maybe it's worth 40 and i owe 100 yep what do most people do in that situation they just keep driving do they really look at their credit and go, well, we're going to have the sacrificial lamb. This is going to be the one. Like, what really happens? Well, so we've seen it on a smaller basis. Yeah. Right? And the smaller basis would be in normal business and day-to-day -day business. Yeah. And when you have a client come in that is that far upside down, um, they, they, they begin asking themselves those very same questions. Do I want to keep this vehicle? Is the vehicle out of warranty? Okay, the vehicle's out of warranty. Is it going to cost me more money to 
keep this vehicle? Do I need an extended warranty? Um, let's say my credit is not 800. Let's say it's 650, right? Yep. Uh, it, it depends on where your credit is. Someone with a, a 650 might be, I mean, for $30,000, I'll shave 50 points off this. I'll be a 600. Yeah. You know, because that individual is probably in a different financial position. They yeah. don't have the 30,000 and they're going to lower their payment on the next car they're buying. So like, let me see, I can, and, and I'm trying to, there's a little bit of legal deal here, yeah. but they, 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 they try and buy a new car before right. they, the other one repos. Got it. I'll put it at that. Okay. You, you, let's talk warranty for like two seconds. Yes. Help the people out here. Okay. What warranty do people really need? Well, it depends on how long you're going to have your car. Okay. Right. And so, you know, um, extended warranties, I'll, I'll just, you know, we'll pull the covers all the way back. Our loss ratio on extended warranties is around 65%. Okay. So they're getting used extensively, you know. And your loss ratio, explain what that is. So a loss ratio is if we sell $100,000 worth of warranties, okay. we'll have $65,000 worth of claims. Got it. Okay. So just in general sense. Right. And so we we lose 65% of the time, okay. which we win 35%. Yeah. And then that it's just a lot you got to sell a lot of them. Yeah. You know, but it it, it works out. Okay. Um so it depends on how long you're going to have a car. You know, the the thing that I would caution your listeners on is buying an extended warranty from the people in the mail, the people on the phone because yeah, you can buy that cheaper warranty. But when you go to take that to a dealership, they're not going to accept it. One, because they've tried to accept it in the past. They slow pay them. They don't. They try and use used parts, which then the customer gets mad at us. And and so there's, you know, th- there's a bunch of bad actors out there, you know, because of a 35 percent. Yeah. You know, keep it right. Um, so but it, it depends on your driving habits. You know, I, I would not own a car out of warranty without an extended warranty. And the extended warranty you buy, do you just get a notification from the dealer that says, hey, your warranty's up. Do you want to extend it? Right. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll, we typically contact you or you buy it. A lot of clients buy it at the time of purchase of the new car so they can finance it in with the deal. And so it. then it's done. Um, the, the other product is when we were talking about it uh, for a second was Gap. I mean, I would buy, if I'm buying a car today, I would buy Gap insurance because what Gap does is Gap says that now if you pay cash, you don't need Gap. That's obvious. But if you're financing a car and you paid $120,000 for this car and you get in an accident and it totals the car and the insurance company says, well, that car is only worth forty grand. Here's your check for forty grand. Well, you owe a hundred. There's that delta difference of what you owe versus what the insurance company paid that you're responsible for. Mm. If you have gap product, the gap picks up that gap. And pre-COVID, this is this is the scariest thing in the world for me. <laughs> Pre-COVID, our gap losses were 95% pre-COVID. So a normal operating place. I so we just switched. We used to self-insure our gap. We switched six months ago to a fully insured product. Okay. Because if our losses were 95% in normal conditions, what do you think the losses are going to be 
in two years for these people that paid over MSRP, MSRP for vehicles, and the used car market has fallen off. And I mean, the, the gap is going to be huge. It's going, in my opinion, it's going to sink some some gap stuff. I'm so not I get it. I'm not asking you to be a predictor of human beings and, and you're in the car business so right. you get that people like to indulge on cars maybe sometimes when they shouldn't be but yeah it just seems to me like if i was in 2021 and i was buying an escalate at forty thousand dollars over sticker while i'm sitting in the dealership i'm like this probably isn't gonna work out <laughs> <laughs> I, I i can't look across the table at one of my best friends and do it nor any customer that i care about yeah. i've got to go eat dinner Shop in the grocery stores with all these people. Yeah. And sure, they're they're happy at that point, but they're not going to be happy. And I mean, it's just, it's for us, it wasn't right. Yeah. And it never will be. Yeah. MSRP is MSRP. That's what we transact at. And in fairness, we've had, you know, uh, we've gotten some traction across the country with, you know, we're not selling over MSRP. So we have a lot of people from outside of our area, like, I want to buy an Escalade, can I get on a list? And we won't sell them to them. Because we have so much demand in our area, we're taking care of our clients. Yeah. And to bring up the point that you talked about earlier about service, I can sell it to the guy or girl in New Mexico, but I'm not going to get any service off of it. Right. So why would I knowingly leave money on the table by not selling over MSRP and then not get service? So right. we have drawn a box around you know our stores and that's we're selling them inside the box. Correct. We won't even sell them into Dallas. We talked about warranties real quick on like brand new nice cars. Yep. What happens when you go buy a 1990 Crown Victoria beat to shit uh, for a few thousand dollars? Do you do those cars get warranted? Typically not because they're too old. Okay, so yeah. at what point is a car out of like can't be warranted? Basically, I think usually uh, I think the most you could probably go out is ten years. Okay, on a vehicle. And so when they buy those cars, it's kind of like. If it breaks in half, you own two halves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Which is which is sad and it's tough, right? Because those are the people that really don't have most of the time, they yeah. don't have the discretionary income for repairs. Right. And so that's what makes it so, so, so tough. But on the same side, if you're an insurance company, yeah, there's too much liability to insure there. Right. So it's, you know, it, it's really it, it's tough. And that's why what I try and do is find people in that situation and try and find a cheaper new car and lease it to them because yeah. you can get the payment down. It's under warranty. You know, now credit is sometimes the issue because you have to have decent credit for a lease. Yeah. Um, and I know it's like I'm on here pitching leases, but yeah, you know, it, 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 it's for me, it's a great insurance policy and it's a great, I mean, I lease my car. Yeah. You know, I get a new car every two or three years. You're not pitching leases. You're pitching the right thing for the customer. Right. right. Now. And I can respect that. All right. We're moving into, I think, some meaty stuff here. Why is there a need for car dealerships in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that's a great question. Um, I think it's a, a question that outside people are wrestling with. And they ask me, like, are you a dinosaur? I'm like, well, I don't, know. I don't look like a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, I hope not. Um, so I, I think... In, in the situation where, that we're currently in, when you have shorter supply and higher demand, the online model works. It's, it's pretty easy, right? I mean, customers just, I want it, I'll take it, I'll drop it. 
So you, you could say that the dealer is quasi out of that, right? Mm-hmm. But when demand falls, supply comes up, and now customer right now customers are doing a part of their shopping based on just sheer availability. I can get a Tesla in a week. I can't get this for five weeks. Okay, so I'll take that. You know, it's adverse selection. When we get back to normal conditions, I think the, the dealer plays a lot of positive roles along the way. One, they're a knowledge base of information that will help you through the vehicles. They're also your service center, which is a huge piece. You know, the the you spend, well, let's say, three hours, which I don't want to do that. But let's say you spend three hours buying the car. Well, you're going to spend the next three years servicing the car or four years. And so the service experience through a dealership is far better than what you see through the other individuals, yep. in my opinion. Okay, so then let's take what you just said and right. say, then how do you think about why is what Tesla's doing, why wouldn't that work for every other brand? Now, I know there's laws in place right now. But so let's, let's take laws out. Let's say, right? let's say that we're rewriting the constitution of automobiles. Perfect. So let's go back to 2019 pre-COVID. Okay. If you go back to pre-COVID, Elon Musk got mad at some of his stores because they were negotiating on the price of Teslas. Why were they negotiating on the price of Teslas? Because he had to deliver so many cars per quarter for the street to be happy. So then each store got their quota of what they had to sell. Well, in a market where there's too much supply and not enough demand, Every other manufacturer had rebates on vehicles. Tesla didn't. And if you look back, they were continually lowering their prices at that point. But some of their stores got in trouble for negotiating price. So the fallacy that because it's online, there's no negotiating at that point was inaccurate. But the the, the Tesla model, um, taking laws out, like I said, it's, it's an impersonal purchase. And when you need someone there, they're not there. And, and I think that's what we we provide. Another thing we provide, and this is, you know, I, I most I, I think some people, some listeners probably care, some probably don't. But you and I go to a lot of charity events, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Look at the the donor stack at the top level down to the bottom. I've never seen Tesla, Lucid, Rivian, any of those people in the in all the charity events. I've never seen any of them in there. You'll be hard pressed to go to one and not find one or two car dealers. Is that your way of saying they're not making any money so they have no money to donate? That would be my way of saying that they're taking the money in the communities and they're shipping it somewhere else. Yeah. And that money's not staying. Like when you shop with us, we keep that money in the community and we support everything. And most car and and a lot. I mean, right. It's like an industry thing. It it is. And, and, And it's because as you and I were talking, walking in, almost every household has a car. So every person is a potential client for a car dealer. Yeah. So having our product and our name in front of people is, I mean, that's just how you get recognition. That's how you sell more cars. I'm not challenging you here, but I'm going to just, I mean, we're just going to keep dancing on this for a little bit. That's Do fine. we need these huge car dealerships with 300 spaces for new cars? Is the model going to change at all? Are we going to become more service oriented, less uh, inventory on site? Or if I was saying, will 10 years from now, will the dealership look how it's going to look today from what you're seeing? Easy answer. Let's hear it. And we already touched on it. If Wall Street cared 
about profits over units delivered, then no, we don't need the big dealerships. We will be in the situation that we find ourselves today. We could go with smaller footprints. Um, we make a little more money. Customer gets a better experience. They, they, they order the car online and life is great. That is not the situation. The street cares about how many. At some point, they're going to get back to asking Ford, what's your market share? It's the worst question to ask. But it's the only way Wall Street has to measure whether a brand is growing or shrinking. Oh, well, last, last quarter, you were at 29% market share and GM was at 45. And now you're at 35 and they're at 20. Oh, so you're taking market share. Okay, you're, you're doing the right thing in their mind. Okay, but what's the dirty secret? How do we get that? Well, we got to shove the cars on the dealers. We got to rebate the hell out of them. and We have to falsify a market. If we could get the street to only care about profit, then yes, we could go to smaller dealerships. But with the current construct, as soon as they get the chips, trust me, we're going to be back into not enough concrete and the sea of steel. You've sat on the largest boards at some of the biggest automobile brands in the country at one point leading. What did you lead at Cadillac? Uh, the dealer council and then sit on the dealer executive board for General Motors. Okay. So if you're listening to this, you can, you can take this answer, I think, to the bank. But my question then would be, why doesn't Wall Street just, how do you know that Wall Street isn't going to move to a profitability metric? I don't, but I hope they do. Oh, you do? Okay. So if they do, then... If if Wall Street will care about the profitability of the automobile manufacturers over their market share, okay, then we can have smaller dealerships, smaller footprints, less uh, less inventory in the system, which props up the used car market, which drops the delta between a new and a used. It's better on the consumer, and it's less it, it's more predictable than this roller coaster that we live and eat on. You know. How many listeners and and people come to me all the time? Well, is in the end of the year the best time to buy a car? Has been historically, but not for the last two years. Yeah, because it's all MSRP. There's no rebates. It's a very transparent transactional process. There's no secret rebates. You know, you get back to 2019, and there's you know, well, someone you know, one X manufacturer puts out this X volume bonus, so we sell cars at a loss, hoping we attract this, and it's just which has a negative impact. It really doesn't help the customer okay what recently happened with buick didn't buick come and say we want to buy all our dealers back no um buick has um they're having an electric push okay. just like cadillac had an electric push and there are certain dealers that won't want to invest the capital to go all electric got it because there are certain requirements that are certain that are particular to Cadillac that won't be particular to Buick that are particular to GMC that are particular to Chevy. So what General Motors is doing, which is a really nice thing, is you know everyone knows we're kind of over dealered. And so what they're saying is, look, if you don't want to come on this electric journey with us, and if you don't want to invest a quarter million dollars, we'll give you X to get out of the franchise, and that way it gives you optionality as a dealer. Do I want to invest or do I not? And Which if is you nice. don't, is yep. Buick going to take it over and keep running the store? No. Or are they going to give it to another dealer? I think what Buick does is they um, they will shrink the footprint. And so you'll have more throughput through fewer dealers, which helps dealers profitability. Okay. 
on the topic, I wasn't going to ask this, but now you got my mind going. Who dictates investing in the dealership? Does Cadillac call Frank Kent and say, hey, you guys got to put a couple million dollars and clean this place up a little. We're moving to the next yeah, manu- generation. Manufacturers drive that. Absolutely, they and do. And do you take the risk that those dollars are going to make you more money by investing $2 million in my store? Hopefully, I make more money or does does cadillac provide you the loan or are they on the hook for any of that so it, every manufacturer is a little different but there's typically a program associated with an image facility so for example we built the store in fort worth uh, brand new in 2012 under a certain image guidelines in 20 20 2019, they changed their image guidelines pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. And so they came to us and said, you know, or they came to all dealers and said, here's our new image program. It's voluntary. Um, but if you decide to raise your hand, there here there could be some financial assistance. It doesn't cover half or all of it by any stretch. But it is there. And I've been around long enough to know that the first program is voluntary and there's financial assistance. <laughs> and then after they get a little bit of traction, the manufacturers go to a not so voluntary. It's still voluntary, but there, there's reward bonus money attached to it. And so, you know, I, when I got in the business, my mom told me, she goes, Will, you can count on about every 10 years needing to re-rack the deck. Yep. And then that was about, you know, we moved in in 2022 or 2000. We moved in in 2012. 2012. Yeah, we moved in in 2012. 10 yep. years ago. Yep, 10 years ago. And off yep. of 820. Yep. Uh, and, and, but you're building a new dealership right now, a new Cadillac in Arlington. Uh, as a real estate guy, I would just say, obviously, you, you pick the dirt. You probably got it pre, you had to get it approved by Cadillac. We can do a store here. Yeah. They, they were involved in the process. And then do they send you a set of plans, how they want to see it? Or is it a collaborative with your architect? It's a collaborative. So we bought a store from group one, um, at 30 and Collins in, um, kind of North Arlington near the stadium. And the prerequisite of buying it was that we had to move it. And so we went on the hunt and we found land at 20 in Collins. So just straight down 20. Yeah. But along that search process, I told General Motors, I said, hey, guys, you have all the ad, all the research and data. I said, let's treat this as an open point. Do we put this thing in Mansfield? Do we put it in Alliance? Do we ta- What do we do with this? Because there's certain laws about where you can go in proximity. So they did all their data and they said, we got to stay in Arlington and we need to be, you know, in this area. And so we with general motors went or with cadillac went looking at three or four different real estate spots and we landed on it actually sits in gm financials parking lot it's crazy (laughs) it literally sits in their parking lot there was dirt there you said earlier branding uh is either going up or shrinking are there any brands that are on the rise and things that have been kind of great for a while that are kind of fading away that come to mind the the luxury space is super hot. And, yeah. and I think the easiest way to measure that is there is a couple different reports out there that are they're called blue sky reports. Okay. And so what a blue sky is, is let's say, Chris, I'm going to buy your Chevy dealership yeah. and I'm going to give you a million dollars blue sky. Yeah. Well, let's say that your earnings are a hundred thousand a year and I'm going to give you four hundred thousand. So that's a four X. On, and, and that's what the blue sky is. So I'm going to give you 400000 just 
for the business. Well, all you're buying, yeah, you get the, the you don't buy any assets with that. That's just, and then you got to buy all the assets underneath it. Got Does it. that make sense? So that's yeah, yeah. just the gravy on top. Yep. And so it's a multiplier. And the luxury, super luxury brands like uh, Porsche and BMW and Mercedes, I mean, they're pre-COVID, you know, you'd see a five or six multiple. They're up in the nines, you know? And so to give you a Delta difference, take Porsche or someone like that that's up in the the nine multiple. And then you can go down to Lincoln or Volkswagen that's in the the four multiple. And so you can see the, the Delta difference. And, and the brands move along this chart depending on, you know, what the product they have coming, who's leading the brand, who's doing whatever and they can you know bounce up and down i mean i've seen them as low as like two multiples yeah um so that's how i think that's the easiest way to tell brand strength is what are people willing to pay for it and if if you were the best business person on the planet but you had no car dealer experience could you still become a car dealer like what what is the pathway to becoming a dealer maybe answer it in two ways assuming you're not coming at it with a pile of money and a great reputation to begin with Okay. Versus, you know, Warren Buffett wanted, oh, that's probably a bad one, but let's well, just he say he bought, he bought an existing. So if you're Warren Buffett, you can find an entity to buy their dealerships. So if you have a, uh, if you have a truckload of cash, you can be in the automobile business tomorrow. You can just go buy some. But I, could I buy you tomorrow? If I would sell, sure. But let's just say you would sell to yeah, me. Yeah, you could buy me tomorrow. Chris Powers and, and Cadillac be, wouldn't say, uh-uh, he's never been in the car business. He doesn't know a thing about this. They would want you to keep my management team in place and they would want to have an executive manager with automobile knowledge. But after they do a background check on you and find out that you're a good, clean, upstanding individual, they would, yeah. But I couldn't go and start a Cadillac dealership. That is correct. And why is that? Because the manufacturers decide where they want to put open points or new points. Okay. And so that's the the first key is they have to say, okay, we're going to put a new point in uh, Austin, Texas. Okay. So then they say, okay, bring in your applications. Who wants who wants to put in an application for it? And this is a real this is we did this. We put in an application. And so you go through the pitch process of why you think you'd be the best dealer and you show them a location and you go through that. And so that's how an open point is handled because you can't, you don't buy open points. They hand them out. Yep. Um, and in today's world, the you, you have to have some kind of minority presence to get an open point. And so for my situation, the way that I, the way that I'm going to grow is I've got to go buy other dealerships. And, and probably, easy answer to the question but if there's two applicants me for that dealership in austin and you Mm -hmm. cadillac's probably going to go let's go with will we know him he's got boots on the ground already yeah yeah, Yeah. absolutely it'd be really really tough for someone without any automotive experience to get an open point now you could get that open point if you said look i'm the money and you know bob is the operator executive who's manager. been working at Frank Kent for right. whatever, yeah. and then they'd be like, "Okay, we're okay. in." Once again, bet the jockey. So what? So what would be the? What typically happens? This was a question that came in. If if again, I'm not coming at it from the. I have a briefcase of money. Right. What experience levels does somebody have to have achieved in order for a dealership or a brand to take them? Um, uh, seriously, either by way of buying out a dealership or getting the territorial rights to something new that's going to open up. 
it's really I think it'd be really tough to convince a manufacturer that you could take on a brand if you weren't a successful general manager. Yeah, that had a proven track record. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and so I, I think and you can scale inside of a company to become a general manager. I mean, if your goal was to get a dealership and you didn't have any money, but you had the work ethic and the drive, you could do it. And there's plenty of examples all over the country of people in five or six years um, that have and people that have come to this country that are just driven like hell. And in five or six years, they've got a dealership or two because and that's a good thing that the manufacturers are doing. They are really promoting minority growth of dealers, which I fully support. Um, I think it's a great thing. And so you can you can scale it pretty quick if you show the aptitude. Okay, what about used car dealerships? You can open one tomorrow. You can anybody can open one. You just got to go get a license, pass a background check. And who gives you the license? The Texas Department of Motor Vehicles. And so I say. I'm going to go down to my spot I own on university and I'm going to start selling cars out of there. I go yep. to the, the department and get my license and next day I'm selling cars. Yep. Go to the bank, get a line of credit and off you go. And that was one of the uh, one of the questions I saw come through was uh, floor plan and yeah, let's financing. About it. uh, it's real simple. Um, essentially, we don't own any of the cars on our lot. We pay a percentage of interest on you know the manufacturer. What happens is is they're going to send us a $100,000 Escalade. So they send it to us. We send it to our floor plan. The floor plan lender sends that hundred grand to GM. Car's paid for. It's now on our lot. And it, why it's sitting there, we're paying interest on it, insurance and all that. And then when we sell it, we pay off the lender and then we take the profit. Or if there's a loss, we add more to it. And rising, is it, are those variable rate loans? Yeah, they are. They're, yeah. Uh, it's the only loan I have that is not fixed. And it's tied to either Prime or LIBOR. Who who who's who's a who are the floor plan lenders around the country? Do do regional community banks do? Is or usually like a big bank like Wells yeah. Fargo? So or? the regional community banks will do it, but your really big players are your um, manufacturing um, lending. It's like so GM Financial, uh, Ford Capital, you know the Infinity Finance or wh- whatever. So the manufacturer, almost all of them are captive. And so they 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 get a big share of it, and then um, Cap One I think is a big player. Bank of America is a big player. So your big banks, Wells Fargo, are big players in that. And every once in a while you run across a little bitty community bank, but not typically. Do you think this is a a hot topic these days? So brace yourselves, Uh-oh. folks. <laughs> I don't know if I like everybody. That. Well, you just you have the GMs and the Fords coming out saying yeah. we're going to be all EV by yeah. twenty thirty five. Yeah, is this really going to happen? This is a softball for me. I appreciate it. Here, bing. Yeah. So take a take a hack. Th- this is my opinion, right? If manufacturers are driven by, I wish they were driven by profit. They're driven by market share. So let's start with the fact that the manufacturers are going to build what the public wants. Right? Okay. If you listen to the rhetoric that's out there, and I'm not going to use executive names, yeah. but one manufacturer said, we will be all EV by 2035. Right? <laughs> Three months later, it was, our goal is to be EV by 2035. There is a vast difference between a goal and a mandate. Yeah. And so 
I think that the manufacturers will build what the public wants. If the public wants all EVs, they're going to be all EVs. If the public wants a combination of combustion and EVs, you're going to see a combination of combustion and EVs because someone's got to scratch the itch of the consumer. We can't just sit at the top and dictate what we want. I mean, that, that would be like owning a restaurant and I'm only going to serve whatever I mandate versus we can come in and you can, you know, you don't want lettuce on that. You don't want to, you know, you don't, you know, you can modify, right? We won't go there, but he does own several restaurants, yeah. <laughs> but keep going. But so I think that the consumers will drive what the answer is. I think the more intriguing question. Well, they might, let's just say everybody wanted it. And we, we're not going to make this conversation okay. about, can you actually deliver the promise physically? Do we have the resources to get there? But I'm going to pivot. Right. Or I'll, I'll move. The question is. Have you noticed as a dealer that more people are asking for electric vehicles than before? Yeah. So, and why do people care? I, I, there's probably some that are saying we like it because it's good for the environment. Are there people that are saying, "Look, we'll take either. We just want the best deal." Right. Like, what's driving the the push from your perspective on who's asking for an EV, who's not? Perfect. So, I, I think one thing. So, you, well, let's go back to 2000 and. 10, okay. I think 2010 to it's either 2010 or 2012. Two electric car manufacturers came out at the exact same time. Tesla, Tesla and Fisker. Yeah. Tesla was hundred percent electric. Fisker was gas electric. Range anxiety with Tesla, no range anxiety with Fisker. If you go back and read the articles from 2010 or 2000, I can't remember which one it was. They, everyone picked Fisker to be the winner. Fisker had three cars that caught fire in people's garages and that doomed them. So they were out. So Tesla was now the new kid on the block. And so Tesla was forging this adoption of electric vehicles. And Tesla's done a great job of getting electric vehicles accepted within the population of America, removing some of the range anxiety, putting in charging stations, you know, putting in the infrastructure that needed to exist in order for us to adopt electric vehicles. Yeah. So with that said, there's greater adoption around electric vehicles. So we do have clients that are coming in saying, hey, I, you know, like we, we have the Cadillac coming out with the Lyric, which has been voted one of the best electric vehicles on the planet. We're sold out for like a year and a half. I mean, it's going to be great. I'm excited uh, to see it. But um, people are more accepting of it in their homes. They're thinking more about it, putting chargers in and they're like, you mean I never have to go to the gas station again? Well, no, you just plug in at home. The issue then comes, well, I'm going to go on a road trip. Well, now you got to kind of plan where you're going to stop and eat and charge and do things of that nature. But clients are coming in looking for electric vehicles. Um, they are more wildly accepted and they will continue to get more wildly accepted. The controversial thing I'll throw at you in relation to electric vehicles is that they're not the answer. Oh, I know that. And combustion engines, gas engines really are or not. The, the answer is hydrogen. Yeah. And the electric vehicles simply get us from gas to hydrogen. Yeah. It is the stopgap. And people are like, why was General Motors so far behind on electric vehicles? And the answer was they really weren't. But where they were putting all their focus was hydrogen. And then Tesla came along and changed the entire game for everyone. GM was working on alternative propulsion systems and hydrogen was where they put their bet. 
But Tesla came in and changed it and said, nah, we got to go electricity first. And then everyone's like, no, no, no. And then look where we sit today. Everyone's going electric. So Elon, great job, did it electric. But hydrogen is the answer at the end of the day, in my opinion. Has a hydrogen car come out yet? Yeah, hydrogen cars exist. Who drives them? Uh, they're, they're in certain fleets. They're just, yeah. Yeah. And they're testing. And How do you, f- where would you fill a high, you can't even fill one. I guess consumers aren't driving them yet. Uh, I don't know if they're driving them or not. Um, you can Google it and see. I think they, I think they're in California. Okay. Everything's in California, right? Everything's in California. What I will say about, uh, um, and I don't know if you have any, uh, just hearing through the industry, but you take like what just happened in Florida with the hurricane. One question that came in off Twitter that was actually kind of funny. What happens to all those new cars that got totally uh, rained on and, you know, water filled them up and and all the stuff? Do they just get totaled? And how would you know if you bought a car that went through a hurricane? Super fair question. So I buy a lot of used cars and I've stopped buying cars out of Florida for that very reason. Okay. Um, Let's break it into two camps. Let's go combustion engine and let's go electric vehicle. Yeah. You know where I'm going with the electric well, any, question. Any idea what happens when you put salt water in a battery? It's brutal. It gets ugly. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, get the marshmallows out. Yeah. It's time to roast. Oh, yeah. You know, so that, that's an interesting perspective. So let's go back to what happens to all the vehicles. There is a, uh, uh, I think it's uh, IA, insurance auto auctions. So each insurance company will, you know, you'll file a claim insurance company buys it from you because if they have a flooded car they immediately total it okay because they don't want to have any responsibility a flooded car can have issues for years down the road water gets into stuff and well this didn't corrode in day two but it corroded in month six yeah right so it depends on the severity of the flooding but anytime there's a flood um it the insurance companies buy them immediately and then they run them through the insurance auto auctions and when you go to IA, I think it's IA.com, um, you can, it'll say flood loss. And in today's world, Carfax and I um, can't remember who the other one we use is, um, but they're, they're pretty good at picking it up. Now, where it doesn't get picked up is if I don't file an insurance claim. So if I have my car, it gets flooded, but I don't, it's not really that bad of a flood and I don't file an insurance claim. That's where you're going to get in trouble because there's no way for Carfax or any of the other people to pick that up. Right. Someone has to file a claim for them to get the data for it to pop up on Carfax. Um, I know when when you were telling me about the chip shortage, you said like, I think it was something like there's 40,000 F-150s or something sitting down in South Texas, like on a giant p- waiting for chips or something. Yeah. Like My um, so I, I know where we put cars that are uh, chip don't have a chip yet, but ready to come to life. Where do cars go to die? Like, do we send them across, like on ships to other countries and they start driving them? It just seems like, like, where do all the cars go? I know there's junkyards and things of that nature, but is there something interesting I'm missing? Like, where do cars go? No, there, to die? there's a huge junkyard business. Yeah. Because when you wreck a car, you know, you, you need parts for it and the insurance companies won't use parts because they're cheaper than new parts. Yeah. So a lot of them get parted out. Um, a lot of the cheaper stuff, um, goes down to mexico and it never dies for some reason you get down to mexico and they're still driving like these crazy cars you know that have been around forever and they got like a chevy outside with a fiat engine and a i mean it's like they just so i yeah there is no like crazy sub market 
that that exist um if it can still somehow run it ends up in a different area where that has less emissions you know with our emissions it knocks out some units all right we're gonna go through a few twitter questions i want to thank everybody this was we got a lot of great ones in um does he see the industry moving to cars as a service as opposed to more traditional ownership and if so what are the current industry barriers so i i think when that question comes in is service i think and i could be wrong but i think what he's saying is a subscription model right and so i i think there's definitely an element when we get to autonomous vehicles yeah we can have the subscription model discussion yeah because there's a very solid chance that palmer your daughter will never drive to school there's a very solid chance that she a car will pick her up, take her to school, and then it'll go do eight other things, and then it'll come back and pick her up. The average car spends 80%, over 80% of its life parked. Mm-hmm. So once you get to autonomous, and I've seen some of the autonomous designs from the manufacturers. I mean, there's no steering wheels in these things. There's lounge seating, bars. I mean, they they are it's out there. And so I think, yes, I think we do end up in a form of a subscription model based society for sure. To the extent they have visibility, how are auto loans performing at this moment? You know, I think we touched on a little bit of this earlier. They're they're currently performing right now. But where I really get concerned is probably in the next 18 months is on their performance. Okay. And, And so... Um, or, you know, the, the number one rule is don't try and fight the fed. Yeah. Right. And so depending on how hard they break this thing, I mean, it, 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 that would have a negative impact, but under the current conditions, not super concerned, but there's a tsunami 18 months, two years out, in my opinion. Two part question. How many catalytic converters were stolen from their lots and our manufacturer is going to address this and similar problems in the future? Um, so we've been blessed from that perspective. We have had uh, at our brewery, we had the catalytic converter stolen off of our uh, <laughs> delivery vehicle. And it sounds like a NASCAR when you crank it up. But I'm not sure how the manufacturers uh resolve it because the problem is it's the platinum that's inside of it's the precious metals that are inside the catalytic converters why they're stealing it Mm. and so that's the only reason they steal it because you can't re-put that on anything so they cut the catalytic converter off they find a scrap yard or they smelt it down themselves and they pull out what little bit of um uh precious metals are in there Mm. so until you find something other than precious metals that can do the job of a catalytic converter i'm not sure you solve the problem Okay. And it's an extremely expensive fix. How's the auction market? I think we touched on this. Are banks really not meeting their reserve minimums? If so, does that mean that losses from these repos are suppressed for the time being? Uh, I think currently losses on repos are really probably not too existent. Okay. 18 months from now, they're going to be super prevalent. 18 months from now is going to put us in basically summer of spring of 2024. Yeah. Get your popcorn ready. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. TO's here. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. So, um, not, uh, not seeing a whole lot of it now. You know, nothing out of the norm, but I think it's coming from that perspective. 
What's the single most impactful thing a dealer can do to improve the car buying experience? Is it is it better online or? Yeah, I think it's. I, I think there's a couple things we can do. Um, you know, I, I think I'd start with the sentence that there's there's thousands and thousands of car dealers, and anytime you get thousands and thousands of anything, there's bad actors. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, and you go back to the '70s and '80s. There, there were probably more bad actors than good actors. Today, there is 95% good actors and 5% bad actors. The problem is we gave ourselves a bad reputation that's impossible to shake. And so when one of the 5% does something, it has a negative impact on the other 95%. So, you know, and I get it. I understand it. I mean, it, we, we did it to ourselves. You know, wasn't me, wasn't you, but it doesn't matter. We own, the, we, we own it, right? Um, but what I think we can do to help is I, I think the online piece of it, the more you can do at home without having to go in, I think is a, is a better deal. The transparency is key. There's got to be transparency in the process. Yeah. Um, because I mean, that's the one thing that's pretty, you know, why, why do you like Tesla? It's pretty transparent. I mean, this is the car, this is MSRP. And I know that my buddy didn't get it for a thousand less, so I feel fine about it. So it's like it's why I shop at Costco, right? I'm I'm fine with their pricing model, so I just go buy. I buy tons of stuff. I mean, I go in for blueberry. It's three hundred and fifty dollars every time I leave, <laughs> and I don't know why, but you know, Cash and I are in there buying great stuff. But it's because you're comfortable in the model, right? You know, you're not getting gouged. Yeah, and so. Um, you know, I, I think that's what we can do as dealers is continue to push the online, continue to be transparent and, um, you know, just take good care of customers. How has uh, Uber, Lyft or ride sharing impacted the automobile world? Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it's it's brought a little more transactional business to us because people are using their those cars for a living. And I think Uber and Lyft, they have to stay under a certain mileage and a certain whatever, and they have to meet certain requirements. So I think it's forcing people to trade in and out of cars a little quicker than normal. Um, the other piece that, so that's one piece of it. The other piece you might argue is that when you and I turned 16, the first thing that we wanted to do was go down to the DMV and get our driver's license. I mean, if my birthday was tomorrow at eight o'clock, I'm like, that'll open, open, you know, you're there at the front door. Like, I can't wait to get my license. Right. As I talk to parents that have 16 year olds, I'm noticing more and more 16 year olds that just, yeah, I don't need a driver's license. I can DoorDash will bring me what I want to eat. I can hop in an Uber and go to Chris's house. So you've got the drivers, I think that are helping, you know, put a few extra sales. Is it tangible and noticeable? Don't know. But then you've got the 16-year-olds, which is the future of driving, that really don't want to drive. That's a little scary. And then you put autonomous on top of it, and it fits right into where these 16-year-olds today want to be. All right. I'm going to leave you with one. What is – we've covered it a lot today. Um and as always, just a great conversation. Is there anything we didn't cover? Is there something that's on your mind, whether it's today or in the future, or something that somebody that wasn't in your shoes is not thinking about that you think about often? Um, you know, I, I I think that I think we've touched on it a lot. Um, but just to wrap it up, is that 
doing stuff for a short-term gain is not the long-term solution. Yeah. And, and I think that, and I could be way wrong on, you know, people that were paying over MSRP. I mean, I, we've left literally millions of dollars on the table, literally, but that's, I'm all right with it. Yeah. That's fine. Cause in my mind, that's the right thing to do. So how about I come back in 18 months and, and let's, let, let's see what transpired at that point. But okay. that, that's where my head is at. And I feel, I feel really bad for the consumer if that's what happens. Um, I don't want it to happen. Let me be very, very clear. I don't want the bubble to pop and that to happen. But looking back over history, history repeats itself. These yeah. manufacturers are not disciplined. They all say they are. They're not. The CEOs are judged on the stock price. The stock price is driven by market share. If that's the formula, it's easy to see where this thing goes. If somebody on here is... Uh wants to buy a car or get in touch with one of your dealerships uh where can they find you how about they just email me i, I will, will have the it. i will have the email in the show notes will thank you as always chris it's an honor coming and i can't wait to come back in 18 months 18 months we're gonna do one every 18 months for the rest of time <laughs> you got it thank thanks you, buddy hey everyone it's chris here again Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.